So good to see everyone out this morning. I know we are short just due to those traveling and some illness going on. It seems to be a lot of sinus congestion and everything, and uh, hopefully uh, everybody will get to back to feeling better. Um, but it is good to see everyone out, especially our visitors. We're so thankful that you've come our way, and I hope that our service and our worship has been beneficial to you and been encouraging and uplifting. <clears throat> and so uh, this morning uh, for our lesson, we're going to be talking about repentance from a Christian's perspective. But before we actually dive in and begin talking about repentance itself, I, I want us to understand a few key truths that are in the gospel. Number one is that God loves us, right? We have to know that. We have to understand that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. We have to believe that. We have to understand that. Another key truth is that our sin <clears throat> separates us from God. If you look at uh, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, <clears throat> verse 2. We read, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, that's not because God doesn't care. That's not because he doesn't love us. That's because that is his nature. Sin in of itself cannot be around God. He will not tolerate it. He will not accept it. And it's not acceptable within our lives. So we have to understand that in, as far as being Christians, as far as being made right with God, if we have unrepented sin, if we have unresolved sin, if we have sin in our life that we are refusing to let go of and to get rid of, that is hindering us because it is continually, continuing to separate us from God. And for the wages of sin is death. Right, And so uh, the reality is, is that there's nothing good that can come from it. If, you, if we just want to ask ourselves a legitimate, basic question, what good can come from sin? I can't think of anything that's good that can come from sin. And then finally, uh, a third point that I'd want us to understand is, is that Jesus rescues us. Uh, we read this this morning in our Bible class, but for those who weren't here, in Romans 5 and verse 8. Romans 5 and verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, and further explaining, over in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul sheds a little more light as to how this comes to be. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in Him, that's in Christ, in Christ, in Him, we have redemption through His blood. So that redemption, the reconciliation, the justification, the sanctification, the being set apart and being brought back into fellowship with God, the justification... Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And so if we don't believe any of these three, then we're going to struggle with what we would call the plan of salvation, right? And I've got, this is what we genuinely teach. You know, generally, most of the time, we tell people, you have to hear the gospel. 
You can't just say, oh, well, I believe, and yet you don't know anything about the gospel. You don't know about Christ. You don't know about his work. You don't know about anything, right? You have to hear. Our faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of God. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's actually what's essentially said uh, as far as uh, what kind of work must we do. Over in John 6 and 29, we read, uh, well, in verse 28, they asked the question, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So belief is instrumental in our, in, in our faith, in our obedience to the gospel. Obviously, repentance, and I've got it highlighted because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, right? And which Acts 2.38 actually mentions, it mentions repentance and baptism, where Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Confession, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> you have to confess Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Jesus said... If you don't confess me before everyone else, neither will I confess you before my Father who is in heaven. So confession is not out of the question. It is absolutely a necessity. Baptism, we read, you know, I quoted Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16. Why tarriest thou? Rise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And remaining faithful, right? Revelation 2.10, remain faithful until death. That's near the end of that verse. So all of these things, the key truths that we uh, talked about just a moment ago, these key truths as far as the plan of salvation, the saving of one's soul, these things are all important. However, think about all of these commands, if you were, about hearing and believing, repentance and confession and baptism and remaining faithful. Which is the most challenging of them all? I mean, really ask yourself, is it challenging to hear God's Word? Exactly how hard is it to sit down, to be quiet for about 30 minutes and let someone uh, instruct you or teach you or say, hey, why don't you open your Bible and turn to John 3.16? Or why don't you turn to Matthew 1.1 and start there and start reading out of the Gospel accounts? How hard is that? How challenging is that? It's not that challenging at all if you really think about it, right? That's pretty simple. That's pretty easy. But what about believing in Jesus? So maybe that's one notch a little more challenging, right? It's, you know, because belief, right? Not everyone's going to believe. We know that. We understand that. Not everyone's going to accept what we teach. Not everyone's going to accept what we believe. Not everyone's going to believe in the, the creation of Cain in Genesis 1-1, right? The creation of everything, creation of plant life, animal life, human life. Not everyone's going to accept that, right? But it's a little more challenging, but it's still not that hard, right? 
How hard is it to believe that Jesus was here? Especially when you have all of the evidence all compiled, all of these letters and books compiled into one book. Or, if you're really fancy, you can just pull out your fancy phones or your iPads and you've got it on your, you know, on an app. And it's so, it's so neat. You can go to the search bar and you can just type. If you can't think about the passage that you're looking for, you can just kind of paraphrase what you want to find in that search bar. And it'll take you directly to the passage. You don't even have to memorize every, everything anymore like you used to, Right? So how challenging is it to believe in Jesus? I'd say it's a little more challenging than hearing the gospel. But it's still not hard. Confessing Jesus. Now that one can be challenging, can it? Because why? Because then you have to put, you have to let the rubber meet the road, right? You have to actually be willing to verbally say in front of everybody, in front of your friends, in front of your family, in front of your co-workers, in front of everyone, even those who are unbelievers, those who, who doubt, those who persecute, those who uh, throw out insults because of your belief. That can be a little more challenging, but it's still really, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not that hard to do, right? I would actually equate all three of these things really to be about the same as far as the challenge factor. It's not that hard. Is it challenging to get baptized? Now, I know for me, it might be a little challenging because i got to put on those little tiny waders in there and, boy, I have to really grease myself up so I can fit my big foot in there. But, I mean, I don't even have to use those. I can just get wet and get down in there. It's not that hard. You just climb the steps, get down into the water, and it's nice and comfortable, right? We have the heater set, so the, the heater should be working and on time. And so the water should be warm. You just crawl down in there. I might say a few things, or if you determine that you want someone else to be in there with you, that's fine, not going to offend me, not going to hurt my feelings. They may say a few things, and then guess what? They're going to tell you, cover your nose, and either they'll dunk you forward or dunk you backwards and pull you up. And then you get out and you you get dried off. It's not that hard. It's not that challenging of a task. But what about repentance and remaining faithful? I submit to you that both of those tasks, that's the challenging aspect of the Christian life. Now, obviously, we're only going to talk about one of them because if I talked about both of them, the sermon would go more like 60 minutes uh, because I've already, I kind of preached this in my mind and the timeline that I had was about 38 minutes. So that doesn't mean start your clocks, but (laughs) that's about what I had when I was just kind of going over my outline and going over everything about approximately 38 minutes. So we're going to talk about repentance. Repentance can be quite challenging. So what is repentance? Well, it's often defined as just the idea of just turning away from sin. However, I would encourage you Don't define things based upon just a dictionary that you pull out, right? While Webster's Dictionary is a good dictionary, we need to use Bible words in Bible ways. 
Right? We need to allow the context in the Scriptures to define and determine exactly what it is that it's talking about. Is it turning away from sin? Absolutely. But I submit to you that it goes far beyond just turning from sin. It actually, repentance shows it's a radical moral change within the whole person, the whole individual, every fiber of your being turns away from sin, and it directly goes to God. It goes to Christ. Not only that, but this is very important in regards to our transformation that we have in Christ in our uh, conversion. Uh, If you just go over to Romans 12 and verse 1 and 2, we read this verse all the time. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But I want to explain to you just in short as to why repentance is not just turning away from sin. Obviously, that's a good start. Don't misunderstand me and don't try to misrepresent what I'm saying here. So that's why I want to clarify. It's not merely just turning from sin because, folks, I've seen all kinds of people determine in their lives, you know what, I'm just tired of the party life. I'm tired of getting up, you know, on Fridays and, and having to go to work. And then after going to work, I have to, you know, drive home. And on my way home, I have to stop by the liquor store and I've got to spend 50 bucks to a hundred bucks on, on alcohol and, and all sorts of things. And maybe they make a few other pit stops at places that they probably shouldn't. And they're getting things that they probably shouldn't get. And so that type of lifestyle just becomes so redundant and they're just tired of it. They're tired of the childish ways of the individuals that they're hanging out with. It's just bad influence, bad company, right? And what is bad company? Bad company corrupts good morals, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. So they're just tired of that type of lifestyle. So they repent, they turn from that lifestyle, but they don't repent and turn to God. They just, they just quit that particular sin. They just say, okay, I'm just not going to do this anymore. And so in part, they partially repent, but they don't fully repent as we see in the New Testament. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I've got it up on the board if, if that's easier for you, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 Verse 8 through 10. And I submit to you that Paul here is essentially saying this is repentance, but he's saying it without saying the literal word because he describes it in action, see? So 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 through 10. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And look at this. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
So get back to that thought that I just had with you for just a moment a moment ago in regards to the person who they just got tired of on Fridays. They have to go up and get all the alcohol and all whatever it is that they're trying to get. They're just tired of that. So they just quit doing that. They turn from it, but they don't turn to God. So look at this again. And, and so, so just read it this way. How you turn from idols and that's it. They just quit serving the idols. Well, what good does it do in reference to our conversion, in reference to our faith in Jesus, in reference to our service to God, if all we do is just quit the idol worship? If we quit the idol worship and yet still don't worship God in spirit and in truth, have we really repented? And so that's why I've got that highlighted for you. I want you to understand Paul's saying it without actually saying it. And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's repentance. John the Baptist and Jesus actually spoke about repentance. If you go to Matthew 3, you see in verse 1 and 2, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent for the kingdom of God of heaven is at hand. Repent of what? (laughs) Of their idolatry, of their sin, and to turn to God. Because who's coming? Jesus is coming, right? Mark 1, 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See? Repent and believe in the gospel. Remember what Peter said? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, John preaches repentance. Jesus preaches repentance. Paul preaches repentance. Peter preaches. They all preach repentance. But repentance is more than just turning from one thing just saying, okay, I'm no longer going to do this anymore. It's turning from something and then showing fruit that you have actually changed. And if you actually stay there in Matthew 3, you see here in verse 6 through 8, and they, and, and they were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, that's still John the Baptist here, as they confessed their sins. But when He saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism... He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to repent? Who warned you to turn and to come to God? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Be able to prove that your repentance is true. Is there evidence of it? In Acts chapter 26... In verse 20, when Paul is standing before Agrippa, he said, I kept, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. He doesn't say just, just turn. It's not just a change of mind. Yes, that's a correct definition. It is a change of mind. But that they should repent and turn to God. Look at this. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Is your repentance in action? 
And so in regards to our conversion, if there's no true, if there's no true sense of identity as far as repentance goes in our lives, we will not be saved. That's just a reality. Acts 3.19, therefore repent and return. Why? Who are you returning to? You're returning to God, see? So that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What kind of refreshing do you suppose that is? I would say that's mercy, that's grace, that's compassion, that's love. And the list just goes on and on. That comes about through the true sense of biblical repentance. And I want you to understand that repentance is not just merely regretting something or, or feeling bad or acknowledging uh, the sin or the, the bad behavior. Now, these feelings, the regret, the feeling bad and the acknowledgement, they're associated with repentance. They are part of expressing repentance, but they are not them, themselves repentance. I submit to you that godly sorrow, because we'll actually talk about that later. Godly sorrow is not repentance in of itself. Godly sorrow is associated with repentance. It's evident. It's there. Repentance has to do with our minds and our will as individuals. So if we're not giving up sin and going to God, the feelings alone of regret, that's not going to save you. The feeling alone of feeling bad or just the feeling of acknowledgement. Look, look, God, I've acknowledged my sin. That's not sufficient to be called repentance. That's merely just, that plays a part of repentance. Because what ends up happening is, is we find ourselves in a place of denial. And so think about it. How how dangerous is denial? uh, Denial can be extremely dangerous for for all kinds of people, especially like it's easy to just point out those who have substance abuse problems. I can say this. I've been there. Okay. So those who have substance abuse problems and they are in denial, they don't get the help they need because they are what? They are in denial. They don't see that they have a problem. I am not that bad. I'm not that bad of a person. I don't see anything worthy enough to to cause me to die spiritually. I haven't done anything bad enough to do that. Because when you're in this state of denial, guess what happens? Look at that. Nobody seeks to be saved if they do not feel the need to be saved. Because they, they're not going to reach out. Why, why am I going to reach out for help? Go, go back to Acts chapter 2. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Now look, Peter is preaching to them the first, the first recorded gospel sermon that we have here on the day of Pentecost. Now, he told them in verse 36. Now I'm not going to read this whole gospel sermon. So that your homework, you can read the whole gospel sermon. Because I've only got like 20 more minutes left, if that. (laughs) So, verse 36. 
Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, now, if they are in the state of denial, well, we hadn't done anything. I didn't physically put Him on the cross. I wasn't a part of that. I didn't yell out the name Barabbas. I didn't yell out, crucify Him. See, if they were in that state of denial, that you wouldn't see what you see in verse 37. See, Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now, if they were in denial, they would not have asked that question. They wouldn't have cried out, help me. Now, I want us to go back to our Old Testaments for just a moment. Now, I know I've got Jeremiah 2 up, but we're going to start at Jeremiah 1. Let's go to Jeremiah 1. I want us to understand the problem that's, that's coming about. And, and our culture is no different than the culture that Jeremiah has to deal with. Now, Jeremiah is going to have, he's going to try to reach out to the tribe of Judah, the northern kingdom, to get them to come out of their state of denial. Because Israel themselves were in a state of denial. Judah themselves are going to be in a state of denial, not realizing that, look, we are wicked people. We are bad. Look at this at verse, uh, starting at around verse 15. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one of his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all its walls around, round about and against all the cities of Judah. For I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness. There's not a question as to whether or not they were wicked or not. God's telling them, you were wicked. Whereby they have forsaken me and have have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Now, Israel's response and even Judah's response essentially is this. In Jeremiah 2.35, Yet you said, I'm innocent. I am innocent. Surely His anchor is turned away from me. Behold, I will enter into judgment with you because you say I have not sinned. Now doesn't that ring a bell? What does that sound like? Go with me to 1 John chapter 1. See, that breaks this, very, this initial principle here. Uh, in 1 John 1... Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now look at this, first, this principle here. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Unrighteousness, excuse me. But look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned. That's what God's telling them. You're telling me that you haven't sinned? I've condemned you for the wickedness. I've condemned you for the idolatry. Yet you said, I'm innocent. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. They were calling God a liar. 
Let me get back to Jeremiah. We're going to go over to chapter 3 where God gives them a call for repentance. He gives them an opportunity to change. Now look at this. Start at verse 11. I put up verse 13 and 14, but let's start at verse 11. Jeremiah 3, verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel. Faithless. That means they have no faith. Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Now you think about that principle and why God is telling Jeremiah that. Now, in short, the reason why he's telling him that is because Judah saw the wickedness of Israel. Judah saw the punishment. Judah saw the Assyrians come in and wipe out Israel. And you know what Judah did? They continued to play the harlot. They continued in their sin. They continued to say, I am innocent. They continued in their denial of their sin. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you and I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. And what he's telling us is and what we should be taking from this is that we have to acknowledge our sin. We cannot remain in denial. Think about the prodigal son. If you want to turn there, you can, but I've got the passage up on the board. Now, the prodigal son, he he goes to his father and he says, Look, you're as good as dead to me. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want to have a relationship with you. I'm paraphrasing, kind of telling the story out. And give me what's mine. Give me my inheritance and let me go on my way. And so the father says, okay. So the prodigal son ends up squandering away everything that was given to him. He loses it all to wasteful and sinful living. He had been, up, he had been in denial this whole time. Now look at this. In verse 17, it says, but when he came to his senses. Because he, he came to realize, he said, wait a minute, my... My father's servants, they, they eat better than I do. The animal, that, everybody. Everybody's doing better than me. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. Now you can keep your tabs here, but we'll come, because we're going to come back to Luke 15. But the prodigal son was in denial... Up until he came to his senses. And then he came to his senses. He came to himself. He said, oh, I've made a mistake. And we'll come back to this portion later. But let's go back to Psalm 51. Let's go to Psalm 51. Let's read verse 1 through 4. 
Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you will be justified, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. For I know my transgressions. David was in denial until this point. But then he recognizes what is at stake. He recognizes his problem. And his sin is ever before him. Now he's putting sin in its place and then he's putting God in God's proper place. Sin deserves the trash. Sin deserves to be in the garbage. We should be dead to sin. You ever seen people so mad and so angry and so frustrated where they say, man, that person is as good as dead to me. That's the way we should feel about sin. That sin is as good as dead to me. Let's go back to chapter 32 in Psalm. Psalm 32. And let's read verse 1 through 5. Now look at this. I don't want this to be a lesson of just despair, of discouragement. There should be plenty of encouragement here. Look at this. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. How blessed is whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute uh, iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. But then look at this in verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David's denial and his silence in regards to his sin, it was merely just eating him alive. And we know how that feels. Maybe when we've wronged somebody and we know it, but we're too prideful to go to them. And it just keeps us up at night. And just thinking about it makes us warm and squirm. And we we have that sense of uneasiness come upon us. We get uncomfortable. It was eating Him alive. And our sins that we refuse to acknowledge... The sins that we continue to remain in denial about. The stress of the double life that David was living when he had his friend Uriah murdered because he decided that he wanted to go into Bathsheba and she conceived. This stress of a double life added years to his life. And when I say that, I don't mean physical, literal years. But it aged him as a man. And we all know what I'm referencing when when I talk about, when when you say that type of statement. When, When something ages us, it's because the stress is just so overbearing. 
And it just eats us alive from the inside. Emotionally, mentally, he was starving himself and he was dying. Now look at this, the hands of God. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now understand it works both ways. The hand heavy upon him, why? Because it was pressing down on him as a man. It was awful. Because his sin was before him. And he had been in denial. But the hand of God that uplifts the man, that exalts the man, there's your blessing, see? That's back in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. See? That's, that's God utilizing the hands in a positive manner. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul here references the first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth because they they had just they were loaded with problems. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 starting at verse 8 uh, Paul reveals to us he says for though I caused you sorrow by my letter I do not regret it. But look at what he also says. Though I did regret it for I see that the letter caused you sorrow. But look at this. Not forever. Not every minute. Not every second of your life. It says that the letter caused you sorrow. Though only for a while. So it was temporary. So only for a while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of what? Repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Why? What's he saying there? Well, what's he saying here is that, that the sorrow of the world, right? When people get caught in their sin, they feel bad about it. Right? They're not really repenting. They just feel bad that they got caught. See? So that's what he's referencing there. But the godly sorrow that, that, that's designed by God that we're supposed to feel and that's associated and accompanies repentance, it's not to last forever. The purpose is intended to what? To cause one to repent. So think about Proverbs 28 verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now this is our healing process. This is supposed to help us getting better. This is supposed to uh, allow us to experience the, the mercy, the tenderness, the grace of God, the love. And a restored relationship with God. I told you we'd come back to Luke 15. Luke 15, starting at verse 18 through 21. Now remember, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now look at this. So the prodigal son comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and this is what he says. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. 
So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and look at this, and felt compassion for him. Why? He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You conceal your your transgressions, you remain silent in your sin, guess what? You're going to add years to your life and you will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Look at this. And felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Was it because he earned it? Did he deserve it? No. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He was showing the evidence of his repentance. Not by just verbally communicating that I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to tell him this. I'm going to tell him that. But that he acted on it. And his father showed compassion for him. We're almost done. Go back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 Because repentance should bring about a joy. We should rejoice knowing that we can feel God's presence in our life. Knowing that we can right our wrongs with people. Look at this, starting at verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness like the bones. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain with me a willing spirit. How does that come about? That willing spirit comes about. It's not because God magically implants it into you. It's that the teachings of God have influenced you in such a way that you turn to God and because His teachings have influenced you to turn to God, you act and behave in a particular way. So the deeds of the flesh you no longer serve, but you, you have within yourselves the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. See? So restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, of the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. And look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, he said, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip told him, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you may. 
So they both stop. They, the chariot stops. They both go down into the water. He baptizes him. He comes up out of the water. The spirit catches Philip away. And the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. 1 Peter 3.21, in regards to baptism, it said that it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Repentance brings about this clean and clear conscience. Because we've submitted ourselves to the will of God... We're serving God in spirit and in truth because the blood of Christ is what saves. Final passages and then the lesson will be yours. Go with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Verse 17 through 21. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The repentance is a turning from sin, pointing direction towards God. You can turn from your sin all day long. You can quit doing those evil things. You can stop lying. You can stop the petty theft. You can stop the lusting after someone else who you have no business lusting after. It doesn't matter what it is. You can stop cheating on your spouse, whatever it is. It does you no good if you stop doing that and then you yet fail to turn to God. John, in writing to the church at Ephesus, he reminds them of the words of Jesus. He tells them, therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Why? Because they left their first love. And he was telling them to turn and go back to God. And then he says, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Folks, repentance is not easy. It's hard. It, it's, it takes swallowing a giant pride pill, right? I don't know of anyone who just loves taking medicine other than it just helps you feel better. But especially when you get those big giant horse pills that just you just feel like it's going to choke you every time. That's what it's like swallowing the pride. Is being able to admit I'm wrong. And that I have to come back to God. I can't just turn from it and think that, well, God's going to... He's, well, you know what? God's just going to thank me. At least I did that for Him. What was the least thing Christ did for you? He went to the cross and He suffered and He died. Even while you were still a sinner. 
be reconciled back to God today. If you need to put Christ on in baptism, you need the prayers of the congregation, whatever it is, if we can help you this morning, we invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing the invitation song.